I have slides, yes. Okay, that's uh, okay. Okay, I see. We attracted some audience. It would be nice to hear also from the audience. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, um, I think we should probably start, if that's okay with you. Um, as we're waiting for the for the last people to walk in, please take your seats. Um, and thank you for coming, and very well welcome. Uh, on behalf also of Bruegel, uh, we are particularly delighted today because uh, one of our own is presenting a very important and interesting book on, on, on crisis. Francesco Bobadilla here on my right has written, who had worked for many years at the ACB and has had no doubt, a lot of stories to tell, has written a very interesting book about central banking during the crisis. And today we have a great pleasure uh, to have also the, the book presented here. You've presented also in other places. And, and thank you for agreeing also to present it here at uh, Bruegel. And, and as always, we always um, bring the opposition to this, <laughs> to the arguments made. I don't know if it's the opposition, but certainly enough to talk about. I'm very delighted that Maria Nessen is joining us from the Riksbank also very experienced economist when it comes to central banking, and Paul de Grau, um, also a professor at the LSC who is joining us with huge experience on EU and, of course, on, on central banking issues. Um, we will start with a, with a presentation by Francesco for 20 minutes or thereabouts. Then I will give the floor to Marianne and then to Paul, uh, and certainly after that we will open up the, uh, the floor for discussion. So without delaying any further, uh, Francesco, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be able to uh, uh, share some thoughts with you about uh, um, central banking uh, after the crisis. Uh, and um, and and the book is uh, basically um, uh, the book is basically uh, divided into um, into three parts. And I can have a, a kind of a five-minute summary uh, uh, of the book. Uh, in the past, uh, say, until uh, the Great Recession, we had what I call a quasi-perfect central bank model. Uh, we thought we had reached uh, a central bank model that was performing, elegant, complete. Uh, and I will tell you a little more about uh, this uh, model. Then this model was uh, struck by multiple hits uh, during uh, the Great Recession. Uh, to the extent that uh, the question, uh, we can ask the question whether that model is still viable uh, or not. So this would be the second part, is the second part of my book and would be the second part of my speech and indeed uh, the, the predominant part of my speech. And the third part is, uh, I call it a hesitant forward look, hesitant, timid, uh, uncertain uh, because uh, uh, there are more uh, uncertainties about the future uh, as um, it uh, tends to happen always uh, than about uh, the, uh, the past. So this is my five minute, maybe my three minutes uh, summary. 
um, that has been expanded into uh, 300 pages, uh, which is uh, this book. Uh, and of course, I have a, a, some uh, gratitude that I might express to my co-author, uh, Thomas Valimaki, uh, to authors of uh, boxes uh, that are in the book, um, and are uh, prepared by, by different people. Uh, and of course, when you prepare a book, uh, you uh, have a chance to present it to different places. I had a chance to present it uh, uh, here already to my uh, colleagues, and uh, their comments are included uh, into these um, uh, 300 uh, pages. Okay, so let me start uh, with uh, what I define a quasi-perfect central bank model. Uh, my story uh, really begins uh, with um, the attempt that lasted nearly a century between uh, First World War, when uh, the gold standard was, uh, uh, was lost, uh, to uh, the end of last century, where there was uh, this uh, attempt to put together a fiat currency, a currency that had no uh, intrinsic value, and price uh, stability. Uh, and, um, and this attempt lasted about one century. Uh, and again, at the end of last century, we thought that we had managed to find uh, this uh, technology to put these uh, uh, two issues together. And this technology uh, had uh, different components. The first component was that price stability was on the top of the rank of objectives of the central bank. I mean, central banks have had as Vegas Riksbank, as the oldest uh, central bank in the world, have had different uh, uh, dominating objectives over the centuries. Now, uh, at the end of last century, there was an agreement, price stability is uh, the dominant objective, and that was the first component. The second component was granting technical independence to the central bank. By technical, I mean not objective. Uh, the central bank cannot choose its objective, can choose how to reach its objective, and specifically price uh, stability. The third component of that model was that the interest rate in a Vixelian approach was the nearly exclusive uh, tool of central banking. So. Uh, 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 an interest rate-based monetary policy. Then there was uh, the Taylor rules, uh, or different version of the Taylor rules as specification of the Vixelian approach. So the idea that you move interest rate up and down depending on two gaps, uh, the inflation gap and the uh, activity gap. Then further down in this uh, uh, descending order of generality, you had uh, that the dominant um, uh, monetary policy strategy was inflation targeting. Inflation targeting meant, in a broader sense, the idea that you have an idea of what inflation will be over the medium run, and you adjust your monetary policy, you adjust your interest rate to get uh, to your uh, desired level uh, of interest rate. In that model, in that inflation targeting uh, strategy, there was no real role uh, for intermediate targets, either in terms of monetary policy aggregates or in terms of uh, exchange rate or in terms of interest rate, with the exception of uh, small exchange rate targeters like uh, the uh, neighbor uh, of Marianne in, uh, in Denmark. The last and the most operational component of that uh, central bank model 
was the corridor approach to control interest rates, whereby you move the corridor if you want to achieve big changes in the interest rate, and you regulate liquidity to achieve a position of the short-term interest rate within the corridor. So that was a very brief description of that quasi-perfect central bank model that was prevailing um, uh, before the Great Recession. Now, quasi, why quasi-perfect central bank model? Because there was really no place, no room in that model for financial stability. Financial stability was a neglected child uh, of uh, uh, central banks. And the fact that financial stability was a neglected child of uh, central bank uh, avoided risk of dilemmas coming to the fore in the use of the interest rate uh, uh, tool. So interest rate could be dedicated to price stability because financial stability was sort of forgotten uh, under the um, uh, tasks of central banks and the objective of central banks. And when it was not forgotten uh, uh, explicitly, it was forgotten implicitly because it said, the, the prevailing story before the Great Recession was, well, if we achieve price stability, by and large, we will achieve financial stability. So the two objectives are really collinear. You don't have to worry about, uh, uh, about possible uh, dilemmas. Uh, the Great Moderation, 1985 to 2006 or seven, that uh, two decades, uh, seemed to be the ultimate validation uh, of that uh, central banking model. Um, we had uh, uh, in inflation was uh, stable, activity was stable uh, and, uh, and high, and there was a sense uh, that uh, the superior monetary policy technology that we have achieved was contributing uh, to this kind of nirvana uh, situation, this very uh, uh, um, performing, uh, performing situation. Now, <clears throat> we recognize that during that great moderation, uh, there were imbalances uh, that were accumulating. Um, and I stress the now. Uh, in, in the book, uh, there is a footnote where I say that I was one of the many that did not see the crisis coming, one of the many that were lulled into this idea that uh, we had reached uh, a very satisfactory uh, uh, situation. And with hindsight, it's uh, striking that so many people, again, including myself, uh, did ignore the stories uh, that Kindleberger had uh, started telling back in the 70s about uh, the regular appearances of uh, boom-bust cycles um, that uh, Minsky uh, had tried uh, to theorize and all the facts that Reinhardt and Rogoff, all the empirical facts that Reinhardt and Rogoff about this regular reappearance of financial instability uh, had uh, put into their, uh, had put into their uh, book. So uh, that is uh, the, uh, the model that uh, was uh, uh, prevailing uh, before the Great Recession, and this already took me nine minutes of my, uh, of my allocation. So let me move uh, to the Great Recession, and which were the damages uh, of the Great Recession uh, for, the, um, for that model of central banking. Now, I start off from um, an interpretation of the Great Recession that tries 
to avoid both the northern story, um, the northern interpretation and the southern interpretation. The northern interpretation is it's all the fault of uh, peripheral countries, southern countries, that let too much debt accumulate. Um, the southern story is, no, 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 we were in a very good situation, but then we were struck by uh, a thunderbolt uh, coming from blue sky uh, in terms of uh, a change of uh, expectations. And my combined story uh, is that, yes, some countries had put themselves in a very vulnerable situation because of uh, imprudent policies. Some countries and some financial institutions had put themselves in a very uh, vulnerable situation. And then they were struck by uh, a change of expectation, a la Diamond Debvig, a change of expectation from a good to a bad uh, equilibrium. But if they would have not put themselves into that position, they would not have had the crisis. And if there would have not been a spark coming from outside, we wouldn't have had the crisis. So the two components are necessary. And this is my way to combine the northern and the southern uh, interpretation of the Great Recession. Now, what were the consequences of, uh, of uh, um, the Great Recession for monetary policy? Now, monetary policy was built on three critical implicit assumptions. The three critical implicit assumptions were, one, the central bank can control precisely uh, its uh, short-term uh, rate. Second, there is a stable, orderly relationship between uh, short-term rates and rates that are more relevant for the economy. I mean, nobody really cares about the Eonia or about the federal funds rate other than banks and central banks. But the idea was that by moving Eonia, by moving the federal funds rate in the United States, the entire yield curve would move, the entire uh, curve of risky rates that are more relevant for the economy would move. Now this relationship was broken during the crisis because the spread went uh, all over the place and they became very uh, disorderly. And the third assumption that was uh, uh, negated during uh, the, uh, the crisis was the ability to put interest rate wherever it was thought necessary to achieve price stability. So we discovered during the Great Recession that there is a lower bound, maybe not uh, quite, uh, not quite uh, zero. Uh, of course, uh, Marianne has uh, some experience about negative rate, but not so negative. I mean, at a certain point in time, Taylor uh, uh, rules said that you should have put uh, interest rate to minus three, minus four percent, which you just cannot cannot do. So these three things played havoc to a monetary policy that was based on, 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 on interest rates. Uh, so what did central banks do? Well, they uh, invented a new tool to complement interest rate, balance sheet management. Balance sheet management basically uh, having a, a great expansion uh, of, their, uh, of their balance sheet either in the European way uh, with uh, uh, refinancing operations initially and then QE, or uh, in uh, the American way with QE coming much uh, earlier, but in any case, um, expanding the balance sheet to, to a very large uh, amount. And this indeed uh, helped 
to remedy those uh, three problems that I mentioned, regain control of short-term rates, bring back order in the relationship between short and longer risky rate, and ease even when you would have reached the lower uh, interest rate uh, uh, bound. And I think that the thesis I, I, I tried to bring forward in the book is uh, that this was mostly successful uh, when it comes to financial monetary uh, variables. Price stability was harder uh, to uh, regain. Uh, in Europe, uh, as you know, uh, we have not quite uh, achieved it. Um, uh, and I dedicate quite some attention to the fact that, that there was an exceptional central bank collaboration, uh, mostly between the Fed uh, and the ECB, but more extended, uh, that helped to reach uh, these favorable uh, results. There were consequences from the Great Recession, not only uh, for uh, um, monetary policy, but also for uh, financial stability. And financial stability, this neglected child, came back with a vengeance uh, during the Great Recession. Uh, so it was ignored, and then it could not be ignored anymore. And the burden fell by sort of gravity on central bank shoulders. Um, it was not so clear that they had to take responsibility uh, for that, uh, looking to their statute. But there were two abilities uh, that uh, made the, the uh, falling on their shoulders inevitable. What I call the ability to assess. That is, uh, the fact that central banks have, are the only ones who have a holistic view of the financial system. And then an ability to act. Central banks are the only ones that can do something forceful and quickly, which is basically providing, uh, providing liquidity. So uh, uh, financial stability uh, struck back. So I here list uh, what were the consequences uh, of um, the Great Recession for, for financial uh, stability. Uh, and uh, the last two that are in, in gray, uh, I have already mentioned under the monetary policy part. Uh, but uh, the, the remaining ones, uh, the remaining uh, uh, six ones, uh, were serious enough to, uh, to really make uh, the, the Great Recession very, very uh, uh, grave from an economic point of, point of view. Let me just mention the first one because of lack of time, the limited size of the trigger of the crisis. Now, the subprime uh, component of the uh, US financial market was maybe one and a half to 2% of the total. Uh, and, and this was enough to really create uh, that enormous damage. And that is consistent with the uh, Diamond Dibvig story and the vulnerability and the change of expectation hitting vulnerability in Europe. Greece uh, GDP is 2% uh, of the total. And yet, that little uh, trigger managed to create uh, um, a very uh, serious uh, uh, crisis. Um, so part of the answer of central banks uh, to the financial stability consequence 
was just the other side of what they did for monetary policy. There were many what I call double-edged or dual-purpose measures that dealt at the same time with monetary policy and financial stability consequences, but there were also two specific issues, two specific actions that were taken on, on, on the two sides of the Atlantic. The U.S. stress test and the EU uh, asset uh, quality review. And for a number of reasons, I say that the US stress test was much more successful or was successful in a much shorter period of time than the uh, EU asset quality review. As a consequence, the banking intermediation was impaired in Europe for much longer uh, than in the, uh, than in the uh, United States, maybe this has been uh, recovered just now uh, in some countries uh, of the uh, of the periphery uh, of the euro uh, of the euro area uh, now let me come to the last part of the book which is uh, this hesitant uh, forward uh, this hesitant forward look uh, which were the hits to the pre-crisis central bank model delivered by the Great Recession. And I listed them in order of importance. So the first one I have already talked about, renewed responsibilities uh, in terms of financial stability. The second one uh, is uh, a blurring of the border between monetary and fiscal policy. Now, let me be very clear. I don't think that central banks did what they did in terms of balance sheet management, in terms of QE, to help governments uh, fund it. But when a central bank holds 20-25% of the public debt of a country, the border between monetary and fiscal policy is blurred. It's no longer as clear as it should be. The third one is engendering moral hazard. When you help someone, inevitably you create moral hazard. Now, moral hazard has to be managed. Cannot be eliminated, should not be eliminated, should not eliminate insurance uh, contract. But you want to make sure that you properly manage uh, moral hazard. The ECB was called in to salvage the euro. There, there seemed to be a, a lethal crisis uh, for, for the euro, uh, and governments seemed to be unable to deal with it, and the ECB had to come in. Uh, and this is not uh, something that. Uh, uh, a normal central bank uh, should uh, do. Uh, then uh, the ECB was called to participate in the Troika. They had to go to Greece and say, now you have to keep your shops open on Sunday, or you have to do this on your pensions. Um, I mean, doing things that have nothing to do with the monetary policy responsibility uh, of, of a central bank. Um, and, uh, and then uh, the, the two global central banks, uh, which are the ECB uh, and to a larger extent the Fed, uh, had to give more weight to global spillovers uh, of their action. I mean, they could not in, in, a, in, in any meaningful way act as uh, using the small country uh, paradigm. That their action had no uh, spillovers to the world. Their action had a lot of spillover to the world, and they had to recognize this during the uh, crisis. So given these hits, can we say that the pre-crisis central bank model has been jeopardized? Can we say that we are entering into another epoch in central uh, banking? Uh, Charles Goodhart called the last epoch the triumph of the market. 
I'll be entering now a fifth um, epoch for which we have no name uh, as, uh, uh, as yet. Before answering positively to this question, I say be very careful. Think a lot before saying yes, because the, this attempt to find a monetary policy technology that would assure price stability with a fiat currency has been very long, has been very difficult. Don't throw the baby with, with the bath uh, uh, water. In order to answer this very general question, I break it into two. So, in two sub-questions. The first one, are the changes brought about by the Great Recession permanent or transitory? Of course, if they're transitory, fine. Uh, we don't need to, 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 to do big changes. If they're permanent, that's a different story. And can we think of adaptations rather than radical changes to the model that could deal with the uh, consequences of the crisis? Now, this two sub-questions can be further broken down into operational and institutional aspects. I don't think I have the time to cover the uh, operational uh, and uh, strategic issues, so let me get uh, to the uh, institutional uh, issues. Of the six hits uh, that I mentioned, uh, I think that we have to concentrate the attention on the first three, financial stability, responsibility, blur fiscal monetary policy border, moral hazard. I think the other three can be dealt with uh, more, more easily. I mean, if we will have time, we will get to that into the, uh, into the question. But let me concentrate on these uh, first uh, three. Now, on the financial stability responsibilities, the big question is whether macroprudential measures will uh, free the central bank from dilemma situations. Uh, I presented this in Amsterdam, and of course I referred to Tim Bergen, uh, as many objectives, as many tools. If we had two objectives, price stability and financial stability, and two tools, interest rates and macroprudential policy, well, you would have no risk of dilemma. Now, my answer to this, um, hesitant answer, but the answer nonetheless, is that it would not be prudent to assume that indeed macroprudential measures will be able to deal in all circumstances with financial instability. So the risk of dilemmas uh, is still uh, there. Uh, and, and at least uh, there's the reason why I reached this conclusion that macroprudential policy probably uh, will not be able to deal with this problem in a, uh, in a, definitive, in a definitive way. Uh, now, on the question of the blurred borders between monetary and fiscal policy, uh, I reach a somewhat analogous conclusion. Can we assume that the central banks will not need to use their balance sheet tool in such a forceful way as they did during uh, the, uh, the crisis so that this blurring of the border will be a temporary thing that will disappear over time uh, as uh, the crisis gets back in the in the rear window. Now this is very close to the issue of secular stagnation or not. Now if we could say, oh, secular stagnation uh, is uh, uh, wrong, uh, this is just a temporary period, we are getting back to a situation where we would have interest rates at a normal level, say 5%, so there would be all the room to come down with interest rate to, um, to deal with a recession, then you would say you don't need uh, to use uh, the balance sheet uh, uh, of the central bank in such a forceful way as you did during the crisis. Now, 
I hope this is the case. Again, I'm not sure this is the case. So you have to accept the risk that uh, this question of the blurring of the border will remain. Moral hazard, somewhat similar story. I mean, they, they should have learned a lesson, those institutions and sovereign that, that um, uh, needed the help during the crisis. They should not do it again. Are we sure that they will not do it again? Uh, no, I mean, we're not sure. We have some confidence, but not uh, any kind of assurance. So what do we do with these uh, three, um, with, uh, these, uh, three um, uh, problems? Uh, on the financial stability uh, and um, uh, price stability possible uh, dilemma, I propose a sequential approach. So we start from a situation where there is no problem of financial stability. The central bank is entirely dedicated to price stability. Then at a certain point in time, the central bank sees a dilemma uh, coming up. And then it goes to its principal, say to parliament, and says, I'm sorry, I have two um, uh, objectives uh, and just one tool, assuming that microprudential tool has not uh, dealt with the, with the problem. Tell me which one I should pursue uh, in, um, on a priority. Uh, and then the, central, the, the parliament says, okay, you do this, so you do that. And this lasts until the central bank says, okay, now we are back to a normal situation. The financial stability issue is, uh, is out. I can return to my price stability uh, issue. On the blurring of the border between fiscal and monetary policy, I've been thinking quite hard whether I could um, uh, propose something more clever than just uh, special decision-making rules, so qualified majorities, say, you need uh, two-thirds uh, of the members of the council. Um, but I didn't, uh, and so this is uh, the only thing I propose, uh, that uh, this is a special tool that requires a special majorities. Um, on the moral hazard, I just uh, say, well, just use what uh, insurance companies do. Uh, insurance companies have deductibles, they let the sum of the pain uh, on, uh, on you. The form I put uh, this, I call it Diamond Dipvik pricing, whereby you price your facilities at a price uh, that is somewhat intermediate between the low price uh, that would prevail in good uh, equilibrium and the bad price uh, that prevails in the market in the bad equilibrium. So the difference, uh, some of the difference remains uh, on the imprudent uh, actors. Uh, and uh, as far as uh, sovereigns, uh, the leaving some of the cost on them also means uh, that uh, you don't give any support without conditionality. And I'm eager to listen what Paul would say about that. <laughs> um, and uh, okay, that's, uh, that's uh, all I want. Thank, Thank you. you. Very much. Got a lot to think about. Um, I, I mean, the presentation is very much about the EU central banking, much more than world central banking, right? It would have been interesting to see a few differences between the US and the EU because it would be primarily on architectural, if you, I don't want to say limitations, but architectural features that actually change central banking in the Eurozone uh, and that may not be relevant for other central banks. But that's for perhaps for, for later. Um, with that, Marianne, your comments. Okay, so can you hear me? Okay, good, great. And um, first, a word of thanks for uh, the invitation to participate in this panel. 
I apologize to the audience. I don't have any slides, so you will have to look at that, uh, that slide for, for 10 minutes. Okay. Um, now, let me say it's a delight to be here to participate in this discussion on, on Francesco's book. Uh, I had the privilege of working with Francesco uh, uh, during the financial crisis. I mean, it's now, uh, we're nearing the 10-year anniversary of the Lehman crisis. Uh, and during 2007-8 and, and a few years on, Francesco and I were both members of the BIS Markets Committee. Some of you may have heard of this committee. Uh, this is a very important uh, venue for discussions between central banks. You write a little bit about it in the book, uh, Francesco, the importance of international corporations between central banks. You mentioned now about the deep, uh, the, the important collaboration between the Fed and the ECB. Uh, I, my impression is that parts of those discussions were being held uh, in conjunction with the BIS Markets uh, Committee uh, meetings. Uh, you were a senior member, senior uh, member representing a large currency area. I was a more recent member from a small currency and, uh, area, but at the time, Bill Dudley was was the uh, was the uh, Fed member uh, on the committee. So it's it's very nice uh, having this opportunity to 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 talk about that time and to reminisce. Now, my remarks, my perspective here will be as 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 one of a of a central banker. I've worked 20 years at the Central Bank of Sweden, the Riksbank, which is a tiny amount of time, considering that this year the Riksbank is celebrating its 350th anniversary. So a long time in my life, nothing in the life of the Riksbank. And just the usual caveat, any views expressed here are of my own, and they are not necessarily those of the executive board of the Riksbank. First, just some general comments about the book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Uh, it's, it's a comprehensive and fascinating account of practical, practical central banking written by an expert. I think there are a few people uh, around in the world with such in-depth knowledge of central banking in practice as Francesco. Uh, the book is almost like an encyclopedia. So there's lots to read there. I, I, will, I admit that I haven't read every single page, but I will try to do so at some stage. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it does, one of, the, one of many in, interesting uh, accounts is this careful account of, the, of the, what happened during the financial crisis. Uh, and I hope that sometime in the future, Francesco, you, you get back to writing a memoir about, and, and, and many of the anecdotes are available from those, from those days. Now, your book, it covers the past, the present, and the future of central banking, and my remarks, I will talk about the future, um, some different themes regarding the future. I will try to interject two questions to you during this, this talk, uh, Francesco, so uh, I hope I don't forget to, to mention them to you. So I will talk a little bit about the future. I will also talk about um, some reviews that are being made because this reassessment that your work is, is your book is, is, is part of, um, it has led to many countries uh, re reviewing the, the legislation concerning their central bank. So I'll talk a little bit about the reviews in Sweden and in Norway. 
So some comments regarding the future and the future challenges to central banks and do we need to change this model that you described in, in your book? Um, a few points. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned the area of financial stability and the, air, and the topic of central banking and financial stability, that is, of course, one area that's been debated a great deal in the past few years. Uh, now, I think uh, we need to keep separate here two aspects. Uh, central banks, responsibility for financial stability. I mean, there, I think there's a large consensus that central banks have a large role in safeguarding financial stability. But it's another question whether monetary policy should be used for the purpose of safeguarding financial stability. Many of you know that there's a very lively debate about this in, among academic circles, and many prominent economists have, have uh, argued against it. Um, um, my personal note here is that this is not a yes, and, yes or no question. I think uh, one can uh, um, fruitfully apply the concept of different lines of defense here. Uh, but here I do have a question to you, Francesco. And, and so should we use the interest rate in order to safeguard financial stability? And in a symmetric sense, not just cutting the interest rate, but also perhaps hiking interest rates. You ask, does the model need to change? Um, or should we go back to the pre-crisis uh, pre uh, model? Well, my take is that, yes, we do. Uh, we should not go back to the pre-crisis model uh, entirely. There, there is an important uh, caveat here. Uh, we should not go back uh, entirely because I think um, we should, um, we learned lessons during the financial crisis that have to do with the fundamental purposes of, of central banks and some fundamental um, objectives and it has to do with liquidity provisioning uh, and and also financial stability. So I think during the um, Great Moderation those uh, things were forgotten and I think that um, what we have learned during the financial crisis should be incorporated into our framework. So I agree with you there. So um, back to, so, so to speak, back to the plumbing of central banking. There's a lot of uh, plumbing going on in the financial system and the central banks need to be uh, aware of what's going on. <clears throat> um, regarding the future, uh, central banks, we, nav we navigate in, not in difficult territory, but in a territory that, that varies greatly over time. And of course, I mean, it's obvious to say that the economy around us changes, but, um, but it does change in fundamental ways. And uh, this is, is perhaps sometimes not sufficiently recognized in, in, our, in our frameworks. Um, so I'll, I'll just uh, mention a few of, of these, the, the changing uh, environmental uh, factors, so to speak. Uh, I'm sure you've, you've heard them all before, but let me just go through them nonetheless. Uh, one very important factor, and which Francesco talks about in the book, is, is that of declining, really, interest rates globally. Now, that is the key driver of the low interest rates that we see today. It's not due to central banks sort of uh, freely choosing from any, 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 any level uh, uh, that they want. Uh, at the heart of, of our economies right now, a very, very low 
real interest rates. Some people uh, like to call them neutral rates. Whatever you call it, uh, 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 real interest rates have not been so low for a long time. Um, and uh, that is something which is uh, a factor of, of first order for central banks going forward, how we address that. Uh, other st uh, structural issues, globalization. This has been going on for decades, of course, so, and, and we're increasingly more and more perfect factor markets, more and more freely moving factors of production, more and more integrated financial markets. The rise of truly global markets, uh, uh, product and financial markets. Uh, this has been going on for decades, but I think uh, we still don't fully understand how this affects uh, inflation. Uh, um, uh, I think many central banks have inflation which is too low yeah, yeah, uh, if you compare to their objectives. And, and um, I don't think we perhaps fully understand how globalization has affected the, the process of uh, uh, in, in inflation. We have, of course, and also technolog technological change uh, also affects the inflation pro process. Um, <clears throat> now, I think it's important to note that what I've, I've mentioned here is not just up to monetary policy, of course, to, to counteract, uh, to address all these issues. For example, Real rates, low real rates, uh, reflects um, expectations about low growth going forward, and monetary policy is not the first line of defense there. That is that that responsibility lies squarely with other policy areas. So all structural uh, policy that will um, address uh, uh, that, that is conducive to higher growth uh, going forward would be. Uh, is, is important. Um, but nonetheless, we, we are in this environment, and I think that it's um, not certain, that, but the probability that we will be in this low interest rate environment for, for the foreseeable future is, is very high. And therefore, it's very important that we keep our options in the central banking community. Interest rate uh, policy needs to be complemented by other areas going forward. We need to keep the option of using our balance sheets. Um, you mentioned negative rates, so let me just uh, talk about that very briefly. So uh, Sweden is one of a handful of, of um, areas in which we have negative policy rates, and, and this um, policy has, has proved to be successful. It's, it's worked uh, quite well. Uh, but let me note that it's mildly negative interest rates. It's not deeply negative interest rates. There's a lot of uh, research going on uh, in the academic community about how to pos make possible deeply negative interest rates. Uh, I personally, I don't see the possibility of that being uh, put into practice in the, in the foreseeable future. There are many, many things we don't understand about negative, deeply negative interest rates. So I think from, uh, to be prudent, central banks need to keep these new tools that they developed during the financial crisis, they need to keep them uh, in, their, in their toolbox. Now, I mentioned the reviews. Um, um, so in Norway and Sweden, uh, the central bank legislation is being reviewed uh, as part of, uh, partly as a result of, of 
lessons learned during the financial crisis. Now, let me just remind you, in case you had forgotten, uh, Norway is not a member of the European Union, but Sweden is, but we, we have our own currency. So both Norway and Sweden, we are inflation targeted since for the past 20, 25 years. Um, the Norwegian bank, uh, central bank, uh, has had an explicit inflation target since the early 2000s. The target is set by the government. This is an important difference between Norway and Sweden, because in Norway, the central bank uh, is an authority uh, which reports under the Ministry of Finance. Okay? <clears throat> target is set by the government, and they recently changed the inflation target from 2.5 to 2.0. Um, so they lower the, the inflation um, target. Um, what the government uh, recently did was also that they issued, uh, I think it's called an instruction. I'm not quite sure of that term, but they issued, issued an instruction to the central bank, uh, whereby A, the, the target was lowered from 2.5 to 2.0. Uh, but they also said that the central bank should take... Uh, one of the goals of monetary policy should be to safeguard financial stability. Previously, the Norwegian Central Bank had sort of alluded to that in their interest rate setting, but it had not been officially recognized, so to speak. So in, in March of this year, an instruction from the government to the Norwegian Central Bank said that going forward, uh, you, should, um, you should, of course, safeguard price, price stability, but you should also take into consideration financial stability and counteract the buildup of financial imbalances. That is their wording. Um, <clears throat> so that was an instruction from the Norwegian government to the Norwegian Central Bank. In Sweden, uh, our, we're members of the EU, so our central bank is an independent authority under, the, under parliament. And our legislation very much resembles that of, of uh, what is stipulated by the Maastricht Treaty. So in, in, in the Riksbank Act, it says that uh, the purpose of uh, the, the Riksbank has two tasks, price, price stability and a safe and efficient payment system. Uh, nonetheless, there is a re review going on and the issue of financial stability is one, one of the factors being looked at by this commission. They started last year. This commission is not going to be finished until next year, so there are no results. I cannot tell you about how the discussions are going because I don't know. Uh, but one of the one of the hot topics is the Riksbank's responsibility for uh, responsibility for financial stability. Now, there's a background here. Macroprudential pro, uh, tools were given to the FSA in Sweden in 2013. So the, the central bank does not have any macroprudential tools. But there is, but there is, uh, there are other tools: liquidity provisioning, and, and perhaps uh, interest rate. Uh, but uh, they will be finished next year, and we'll see what happens then. So, to, just to sum up, then, um, I really enjoyed writing, uh, reading the book. Uh, I've mentioned one one question, and the other question, which is my my last one. Uh, and you talked about this in your presentation, uh, Francesco, that when it comes to solving this dilemma between monetary policy and financial stability, the central bank could ask a relevant political body and that they would make that trade-off, uh, uh, the choice. I was just uh, wanted to hear your thoughts on how that would sit with central bank independence. <laughs>
an important question. Okay, but why don't we move uh, straight to uh, Paul's uh, comments, and then we can we can perhaps, if you can keep keep your reactions for sure. after Paul, that would be great. Yeah. Okay, there it is. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to, to be here. Um, it's not the best part of Brussels, but uh, it, it's still <laughs> it's still uh, good to be here. <laughs> no, I was driving here and I couldn't get in. Uh, anyway, no, I, I like to be here. Let me make that clear. I also like to... <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, this is a great privilege also that I could um, comment on, on this book by uh, Francesco and, and Thomas. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. Um, it, it's great. It, it gives us so many important insights on how to conduct monetary policies in crisis times. And it's written, you feel it, by somebody who has been close uh, to the, the practical um, implementation of policies and, and for an academic this is always quite important to, 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 to be aware of this, right? We tend to idealize things and, and it's good to be brought back to earth um, by a practitioner like Francesco. I would like, there are many points that I could discuss of course, uh, but I would like to take two out of them. Uh, one um, is about the fundamental causes of the impairment of the transmission of monetary policy in the, in the Eurozone. I mean, we have seen, and, and, and Francesco describes that in great detail, how the transmission of monetary policy has been impaired during the crisis, right? And, but I'm going to concentrate on the Eurozone. And then the zero lower bounds. If, if I have enough time, if you permit me, Maria, to do that. Uh, the, Impairment of monetary policy transmission in the Eurozone. There are two dimensions to this problem, um, or two ways you can have an impairment. One has to do with the fact that the policy rate may not transmit easily to the lending rate because of a banking problem. The banks hold reserves. That will typically be the case after a banking crisis, right? a liquidity trap and all this. And that's something that we have seen both in the US and uh, also in the Eurozone. But then there is something which is much more specific for the Eurozone, uh, and which is that the transmission of the policy rate between across countries has also been impaired, right? Um, and, and that's very typical for the Eurozone, right? That's not something you find in, in the US. And, and I will argue that this has very much to do with the instability of national government bond markets, right? And, and I will focus on, on that issue. So, of course, I'm aware that the other one is equally important, but I will focus on the problem that is specific for the Eurozone, right? Um, so, and, and this brings me to this idea of the instability of the sovereign bond markets in a monetary union, in the Eurozone in, in particular, right? Uh, we, we all know what the origin is, uh, the sovereign... The, Governments in, in a monetary union issue debt in a currency that is like a foreign currency, right? And, and um, they are not backed by a local central bank, and as a result, they are uh, subject to self-fulfilling liquidity crisis. When, especially during recession, this is going to happen 
It happened during the last recession. It's likely to happen again during the next recession when investors will want to get out of one uh, bond market and move into a bond market that is perceived to be safer and as a result creating large destabilizing capital flows. That's the feature of the Eurozone, which is not there in, in the US, right? Uh, it's a typical feature uh, of the Eurozone. And a fundamental cause is the lack of central bank support of sovereign bond markets, automatic um, central bank support uh, of sovereign bond markets. And, and this can lead then to multiple equilibria, good and bad equilibria. And then, of course, the transmission of the same policy rate will be, will be impaired. Um, Francesco puts a lot of emphasis on the diamond dipfish model, which is okay to describe the, the banking uh, crisis and the banking one, but not okay to to um, describe what is going on in the Eurozone and the movements from one sovereign bond market. It's similar, but it's not the same. And my criticism, if I may, uh, Francesco, is that you, you probably apply it too, too much also to the Eurozone, and you should have done something different there. Um, and, and so my criticism also is that you don't um, go enough into the specificity of the instability in the Eurozone, which is the result of the fact that this is a monetary union with one central bank and 19 different sovereigns, right? And that creates a very different uh, problem of management also. And that is a little bit um, underdeveloped in, in your book. That's my feeling. You, you tend to put the Fed and the ECB quite often in, in the same kind of um, analysis. So, <clears throat> How to deal with this, right? How to deal with this instability in a sovereign bond market and, and the, the fact that with each recession we risk to be uh, confronted again with destabilizing capital flows because these recessions don't have the same intensity, right? There will be governments hit more than others and then investors are likely to run from the first one and go to the other one, right? Uh, and that will again bring the problem there, what should the ECB do? The ECB has announced OMT program. It waited too long to do so, in my view, but anyway, they did it in 2012. But it lacks credibility. Um, when we ask the question, is it going to be used during the next recession when spreads increase again? Are we sure it will be used? I'm not so sure, right? Um, basically, because the OMT was set up to solve an existential crisis but not something recurrent that we may have to do each time there is pressure in sovereign bond markets as a result of a downturn in economic activity. Also, I think it's loaded with too much conditionality. You asked me the question, Francesco, what I think about conditionality. It's loaded with too much conditionality because when, you, when do you want to use this thing, right? When there is a recession, because that's when the, the crisis, the liquidity crisis, and the capital flows will occur. And that's when you will impose conditionality, that is austerity, during a recession. That's when you shouldn't do it, right? So that's not the right way to do it. And, and, um, and, and therefore, I think it's unlikely to be used, because some countries may just not want to use it, right? Um, and finally, it depends on the goodwill of civil servants. That's a big difference between a sovereign nation uh, a government that is backed by its own central bank, and there the government will always prevail over the central bank. When the government is in trouble, there can be no doubt that it is the, the government that will prevail over the central bank. That's not the case in the Eurozone, right? 
no government prevails over the ECB today. Right? And as a result, we are dependent on the goodwill of civil servants. Who will that be? We don't know. So therefore, this whole thing has little credibility, right? It's, uh, and, and, and therefore, we, we are still there. Um, say, now I'm going to skip that, otherwise uh, you, you know, the safe asset is not a solution. Okay, but I'm going to skip all this, uh, otherwise I will never finish, I think. <laughs> so what, what is my solution? Well, in fact, uh, some kind of what you have called balance sheet management, the composition of the balance sheet. That is, the TCB, in fact, should commit itself to maintain spreads within certain bounds, right? Say something between 1% and 2%. And then we come close to what you say, deductibles, right? You, you would say, for example, the, the Italians are in trouble because investors sell Italian bonds. So the central bank then says, okay, we are going to intervene, but we first let the interest rate uh, increase a little to, to one, one and a half, or two percent or something. So a kind of uh, more, you know, to prevent moral hazard, right? They, they still have to pay a little more. But then we commit to, to buy these assets, right? Uh, to avoid that we are pushed again in this kind of destabilizing situation that we have seen in the past. That's what. Just for clarification, what, what do you mean? So let's say some countries' bonds uh, go beyond the 2%, then, then the, the ECB buys these bonds to be invested. That's right, that's right. Like, uh, that's right. You have, you have the corridor on the interest rate, right? You, you, you do something similar. Central bank is used to, to work with corridors, right? You could do it here too, which means that you would do some kind of asset management, the composition of, you would change the composition of the assets, right? You, in order to make sure that this kind of destabilizing capital flows does not undermine the system and does not lead to worse system. And this will then also help to have reasonable transmission mechanism, right? Uh, so that, that would be uh, my proposal, and, and it fits a little bit in the kind of terminology that we have been using now, namely, um, we, we will have to continue to do um, balanced management, right? We, which, and especially in the Eurozone, it's, it's key that we do that in the composition. I know it's not going to be popular in some countries, what I propose, but um, I don't care. <laughs> it's, a, it's a common problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so last point I yes, want to yes. make. Can I make that oh, please, point? Please, okay. please, please. Uh, the zero lower bound. Should inflation target be raised? Uh, Francesco discusses this. It's not a very big, uh, long discussion, but it's one of the issues that we face for the future, right? Uh, the 2% that is now sacrosanct, right? Uh, is, is that really what we should uh, maintain? Um, Francesco um, has some, some sympathy, but in, in, in another way then rejects this, mainly because of um, the, the transition, right? How do you go from 2 to 3 or 4%, right? That's, and that's a, these are reasonable arguments, so I'm not going to discuss these. But I, what I want to do now, I want to present a little bit of the, the, the research that I'm doing with behavioral macroeconomic models, right? Uh, if you have the opportunity to, to make some uh, advertisements, right? Uh, about uh, how to do macro in a different way. So I've been constructing a behavioral macroeconomic model together with Yume uh, G. Uh, and, and that's a model in which agents have cognitive limitations. They cannot have rational expectations. That's too difficult. 
I don't understand the world, and therefore uh, rational expectations is implausible. Of course, I know in macroeconomics, if you don't use rational expectations, you don't get published, huh? So that's the problem with, that I have these days. Anyway, um, but so, I, but I don't care, that's right. I'm in a position, like I say, I don't give a damn. <laughs> So, and, and this is a model that produces endogenous waves of optimism and pessimism, animal spirits. It's, 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 and it, you, you produce it endogenously. It has to do with the fact that um, in, in this world, um, for, for some trivial reasons, um, people who have optimistic views about the future, right, may at some moment take over. And since this is self-fulfilling, this, this will tend to lead to a boom, and the boom itself enhances optimism, and you get a, um, a, a dynamics that creates uh, optimism, euphoria, until the crashes come, right? And that's what this model pre predicts. When you ask outsiders, they will say, is that all? We knew that this is the way the business cycle works, but that's not how macroeconomists today uh, think, right? They think that this cannot happen. I mean, rational agents would never be driven by excessive optimism and pessimism. These are notions that they don't understand academic macroeconomists, right? Uh, but I, I, I have this approach. And then what I did, I used this model to simulate um, under different assumptions of the inflation target, right? And I'm going to very briefly show you, I'm not sure this. So I, I show you on the left-hand side, movers in the output gap, when the inflation target is zero, right? And then below is the movement of the animal spirits, right? And then I put the same stuff in the frequency domain, right? So the output gap on the right-hand side is the distribution of the output gap in the frequency domain. And below, on the right-hand side, is animal spirits also in the frequency domain. And what you see is that when inflation down is very low, 0% in this case, then you get skewness, that is pessimism prevails. Because the economy is pushed into negative territory, the central bank has no tools to bring it out. And since the economy is in a recession, people are pessimistic. Pessimism maintains the recession, and you create chronic pessimism. And that, that's the skewness that you see there, right? In both the output gap and in animal spirits. And then you raise the inflation target to 2%, and you see more symmetry. But there is some skewness left over, right? When, when I go to 4%, then it's purely symmetric. Then periods of optimism and pessimism alternate in a symmetric way, right? So we did a lot of analysis of where exactly should we be. Here's a sensitivity analysis where on the horizontal axis, I set out the, the level of the inflation target, and then on the vertical axis, the skewness of the distribution of the output gap, right? And when inflation target is very low, then it's very skewed to the left. Lots of recessions, lots of pessimism. When you increase the inflation target, you, you bring the economy closer to symmetry, where optimism and pessimism uh, alternate in a symmetric way. Interpretation, when inflation target is too low, cyclical movements in output gap and animal spirit lead to recessions that drive inflation into negative territory. When that happens, the zero bound constraints make it impossible for the central bank to lower the real rate further, right? And that creates this chronic pessimism. 
If the recession is deep and the deflation intense, the real interest rate is likely to increase, in fact. And a recession becomes protracted, pessimism sets in and amplifies the recession and validates pessimism. And, and so that, that is basically the story I get. And therefore I'm saying, well, let's think about, let's, let's think about out, of, out of the box. I know today 2% is, you cannot touch it, right? Uh, if you say, oh, it's impossible, right? But think out of the box. We have chosen 2%, but why? Nobody knows why we did that, right? And, and here's some evidence that this may be, in fact, too close to zero, creating conditions of what I call here chronic pessimism. And just by way, you don't have to go to four. In my simulations, something around 3% would, in fact, do most of the job for you. And you can, in fact, live more happily. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Thank wonderful. You for your attention. Thank you so much, Paul. Very a, a lot of a lot of interesting things uh, that, as we think about monetary policy in the future, and also the role of models and the role of expectation yeah. formation. Uh, that that uh, you know, Francesco has to deal with all of this in practical terms. That's right. Um, yeah. Francesco, why don't you uh, yeah, perhaps I, pick and choose on a few yes, points that Marianne? Yes, yeah, I, I, I will have to choose. I mean, if I get a, a, a general message. Uh, from this is uh, that I should go back to Oxford University Press and ask for a second edition as quickly as possible <laughs> so that I can take into account all the comments uh, that were uh, that were raised. Short of that, um, let me uh, deal first with uh, a question of uh, Marianne. Uh, should the interest rate used, uh, be used for financial stability? And I think you, you made a very relevant point that the discussion on this is huge and inconclusive. It's huge. Many, many people say, no, 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 you have to lean with interest rate against uh, 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 excessive uh, optimism that leads to financial instability. No, 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 you have to keep uh, interest rate firmly assigned to uh, price uh, uh, stability and think about something else. Uh, for Now, to me, the reason why we have so much discussion and so little conclusion is that this is an issue that cannot be answered in analytical terms. This is, at the end, uh, an issue of preference. That's the reason why a technical institution like the central bank that is, doesn't have political independence to set its objective, to do arbitrage between two different objectives. Uh, it's a bit similar to the situation of the Federal Reserve that has uh, an inflation target and, uh, and an employment activity uh, target, and somehow they have to arbitrage, and, and I think they are, this creates some difficulties for them. Uh, that's why I say, no, you cannot deal with that just in economic terms. That's a political choice, so you have to go back to your principle. Uh, whomever your principle uh, is. Uh, and to, to make it a little more specific, my sequencing story, I see that uh, as a dilemma starts to appear, uh, there should be as much as an attempt as possible to use macroprudential measures to deal with it. Uh, and I don't take position whether the macroprudential measures should be taken directly by the central bank or should be taken by some, someone else. The central bank should be, in any case, associated with these macroprudential measures, but I, I don't take a very strong view on who should take them. In any case, okay, you see 
financial stability issues coming, you try and use macroprudential measures, and you see whether you deal with a problem. Uh, if you don't deal with a problem, then comes my you go to parliament uh, uh, story. Uh, and uh, to um, answer the question of how this fits with uh, central bank independence, this fits in the way that it is uh, the central bank that uh, calls for a dilemma situation and for the end of the dilemma situation. So it's not the government that uh, can say, ah, yeah, yeah, I see that uh, there is a financial stability issue, so you please do that. No, it's uh, the central bank that has to go to uh, parliament and raise uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, dilemma, uh, this, uh, dilemma uh, issue. Um, so another point. Uh, uh, that uh, Marianne raised is uh, uh, going back uh, to the pre-crisis model. I mean, I, I, in, in one of my slides, I, I said I don't favor radical solutions, but there are people who have been uh, favoring uh, radical solutions. One radical solution, if we go back to making central banks a glorified government department, so we go back to the 70s uh, with, with exception that central banks didn't have technical independence. So they were part of the government, glorified, because they were called in a different way. Maybe salaries were a bit higher or something like that. But um, basically, they were part of the... Uh, and, and I think that that model has been tested and failed. I mean, for, for countries that had that model did not control inflation in a proper way. Uh, so I, I think it's, it would be unwise to, to get back to that. Then the other radical solution, I, I think Willem Boyder has made this point, is you go back to a narrow central bank. A narrow central bank that only has the interest rate and only has price stability. For the reasons I mentioned, I think this would not be prudent. It's, it could be, and I think you made the, that point, that uh, they would have to use again uh, balance sheet management uh, for that uh, they would uh, encounter a dilemma uh, in, uh, in um, uh, between financial and price, uh, price stabilities. Um, now, uh, on the first point of, uh, of, uh, of Paul uh, that uh, has to, to deal more with what I said, but then I would say something about also about your um, behavioral model and, and its consequences. Uh, now, to me, what you are trying to achieve is a situation of fiscal dominance. The central bank uh, has to finally uh, accept uh, to fund the government. Now, you say, okay, I want to have a 1% to 2% margin corridor, but when you get to that, you get to uh, uh, fiscal dominance. I mean, the central bank has to print enough money to fund whatever that government is doing. And the government doing it will just uh, go to the, uh, the border. Okay, I, I will have to pay 1% more, no more than, uh, no more than that. I just uh, 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 do whatever I wish uh, with my uh, uh, deficit and my, uh, and my budget. And I think that what we have in Europe is a situation where intrinsically you cannot have 
fiscal dominance because uh, there is nobody that can order the central bank to uh, to print uh, to print money. With your system, you get back, in my view, to a situation of uh, of uh, fiscal dominance. Um, the other related uh, uh, point uh, uh, here, I mean, who was affected by the Great Recession? Who was affected? Not Germany. Why not Germany? Not the Netherlands. Why not the Netherlands? Not Austria. Why not? Italy, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, Cyprus. Countries that had run imprudent policies. They put themselves in a dangerous uh, situation, and yes, so they were hit. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you don't, you, you, you cannot deal with that unless, unless you have some degree of responsibility remaining on these, uh, uh, on these, uh, on these, uh, on these uh, countries. Now, uh, on uh, raising the inflation target, uh, as you rightly say, I don't say no. I don't say yes either. I'm skeptical about the usefulness of increasing it, let's say, from 2 to 4 to 2 to 4 percent. I recognize that the 2 percent, there is an element of conventionality. I mean, I don't think you can show that 1 percent uh, is much worse than 2 and that 3 is much worse than 2. I mean, we chose 2. It seems that this has become a kind of uh, uh, universal uh, peace, peace uh, uh, Greek P, I mean, in central banking, everybody's, Sweden is on two, uh, ECB, the Fed, Japan, Switzerland, uh, the UK, uh, everybody in advanced economies is on, is, is on two, but we have made a big effort to tell two agents, think about 2% as being the permanent rate of inflation, which we say for some reason is close to be zero price stability in real terms because we know that in genuine terms we know we cannot properly measure uh, inflation. So maybe it's one billion people now in the world that has uh, this convention in mind and uh, work and decide upon this convention. Yes, it's uh, a transition cost to move away from that. Uh, but it's a big transition cost. I mean, why are we still using Azerty on our keypad? Uh, or because I mean, we have never managed to to pay the cost of moving to A, B, C, D, A, F, G, A, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, and then looking at your charts, I mean, maybe we would have to move uh, from two to three percent, from two to two and a half percent. Is it really worth its uh, its while? Or if we find again a zero lower bound or uh, a lower bound of a non-zero lower bound, as uh, Mariana says, okay, we will be forced to use again uh, our central bank balance sheet in order to ease monetary policy even when we have reached. So what is the relative cost of having to use continuously, uh, continuously, again, uh, balance sheet uh, or raising the uh, inflation target? The arithmetics of this um, cost-benefit analysis is not clear to me. Okay, Francesco, thanks very much. I think we need to collect a few questions, uh, but before we do that, uh, can I ask a question myself on your proposal on the sequencing? Uh, so you have the central bank coming into dilemmas, and with these dilemmas, it goes to the parliament. Uh, tell me which one do you want me to pursue? 
there is need to be a trigger mechanism in there. That, uh, uh, for the central bank to behave in a different way than normally, there is a trigger mechanism there. And trigger mechanisms by themselves could be quite extortionary. So, uh, you know, we've seen this with exchange rate bans. We've seen this. Anything that has got a ban, so a condition beyond which I do something else, is in itself uh, distortionary. And there is also a buildup coming up to the threshold that actually precipitates the behavior that uh, you are trying to avoid because it is a crisis behavior. So while I see the merits of what you're suggesting, the practicalities of this is that it would be quite difficult to implement uh, yeah. uh, uh, very much actually on a par with what, uh, what Paul is suggesting of the, you know, the buying, <laughs> buying the debt in order to keep the rates down. It's, it's got merit, but as you say, it translates to monetary financing effectively. Um, so I was wondering, you know, how does that how is that going to play out for somebody who's interested in the practical parts of, uh, of this? But, but before you answer, can we collect some questions from the floor? So I have, uh, have Andre, I have Jorius, and uh, Martin. Yeah. Thanks. It was a fascinating presentation and, and, uh, and discussion. Uh, two questions uh, that relate to, uh, to what Paul said. The first question. Um, let's take seriously what Paul suggested, which I basically agree, is that uh, we cannot really compare the ECB to the, to the Fed, right? They are both central banks, they bought a lot of you know, technologies, and, but there is a difference, right? We are a monetary union, the US is not a monetary union. So first question to Francesco, uh, could it be that the looking forward part is different from the ECB and for the Fed. That is, the Fed returns to the, to the ex-ante situation, but uh, the ECB has learned that it cannot return to the, uh, to the ex-ante situation. The ex-ante situation is a lot of trouble ahead, continuous problem. And what would be the implication of those two largest central banks in the world behaving going forward in this different manner. One going back to the old model, to the pre-crisis, and the other one saying, no, no, I cannot go back to the, to the pre-crisis. That's the first question. Second question is, in a sense, to, uh, to Paul. Uh, what you suggested with this band, okay, it was discussed, I remember, right? We, we, we remember that. Uh, exactly the way you, you, you suggest, right? To put a cap on the, uh, in a sense, this is what has been implemented very late in the day, but that was implemented. Now, however, I think what Francesco says, hey, wait a second, uh, you do this, uh, you are inviting to certain behavior. Uh, let's say you announce this today, and before this new Italian government uh, comes about, and uh, uh, is it the license for the new uh, Italian government to say, well, you know, uh, we can do whatever we want because, you know, the ECB ensures that the penalty that I'm paying to this is not worse than whatever your, your cap is concerned. So my question is, uh, although I think it's a good idea, don't you think that this good idea uh, needs to be uh, put in place in conjunction with something else? Uh, and then what is the something else? Uh, what is the something else? Is this fiscal rules that are credible? Is it uh, imbalanced procedures that are credible? What you know? What, what is it? Don't you think that we need something? And what is sure. the something? Thank you, Andrea. Yes. You're also the question? Yeah. 
probably not much different from what address said. But my question has to do with the kind of historical background of this crisis that I think the Eurozone crisis to a great extent, you know, a banking crisis, though we put Greece always, but the great problem is not a, a banking crisis at the beginning was fiscal, but all the others banking crisis, which somehow it's a financial stability uh, problem. And the question is why uh, central bankers they haven't seen this thing right from the beginning, meaning from uh, uh, 2000. What was really, they couldn't hit the lessons of Hyman Minsky, you know, at, at least said the basics we, we recalled, that if you have a crisis, you need a big bank, which we have, but you need a big state, which uh, we don't have. And then we have to resort to the ECB using all the conventional measures and arrive at the court also to validate the, the ECB's uh, position. I mean, are we ready to repeat probably the same mistake? And uh, the second question relates to Sweden, talking about financial stability. How Sweden feels being outside the Eurozone, and probably, you know, a coverage that, you know, uh, Euro area could offer in terms of, uh, you know, of uh, financial uh, difficulties, having in mind uh, Nordia models and so on. Are there any ideas in this respect? Yes, thank you. I have a question on the choice of the inflation target. Now, in his presentation, uh, Mr. Papadia refers to the ECB uh, as a technically independent institution, which I suppose is the instrument independent, so it it can decide how to uh, pursue an objective, but the objective is given. Now, I'm not an expert in monetary policy, I, I admit that, but my understanding uh, is of the ECB that, that the inflation target is not defined by the principle, but only the, let's say, the, the price stability objective. And then, again, I'm not sure I, I fully understand the, the legal details, but then it is the ECB who sets the inflation target at 2%. Now, we, we have heard that the, it works differently in other, in other um, jurisdictions. So what would you think is the specific benefit of having, and I'm agnostic about uh, the, the different solution, but from your point of view, what is the benefit of having the uh, the central bank also deciding about the specific target. So it's, to me, the ECB seems to be a mixture between instrument independence and uh, objective uh, independence. Look here, uh, Francesco, uh, why don't you take the word first? Okay, okay, let me, let me try. Um, how the proclamation of dilemma be, uh, be called. Yeah. Uh, now, in my sense, this would not be a mechanical kind of exercise. This would have to be uh, an assessment, maybe a judgment uh, at, uh, at the end, an articulated judgment by the central bank that would see stock prices uh, going too high, real estate prices going too high, debt going too high, um, uh, spreads, uh, risk spreads going too, too low on an aggregate basis, 
in uh, the euro area or in the United uh, or in the United States, having tried microprudential measures uh, of one kind or the other, uh, loan to value ratios or loan uh, uh, to uh, income uh, uh, ratios or uh, dynamic uh, capital charges, and the phenomenon continuing, uh, and then the central bank would produce a big book, go to the parliament with its big book, and the, the, the final five lines would say, notwithstanding all what we uh, have done, we think that unless we raise interest rate, we will continue having financial stability issues. Now, given that uh, we don't have inflation where we would like it to be because it's too low, maybe we are even in deflation, this will aggravate the uh, inflation uh, problem. Tell me. Should I give more weight to the inflation, uh, to the price stability, or to the financial uh, stability? And, and, and then Parliament, in my, in my, uh, would do the political arbitrage and say, well, in current conditions, we think that this objective is more important than, than the other. Um, and if I may, in the Eurozone, because that also comes into the question that Andres asked, how would that work in the Euro area? Well, in the Euro area, the parliament in my view would be the European Parliament. So the and the ECP would go to the European Parliament, the Fed that would go to Congress. I imagine there would be I don't know whether the Senate or, or the House. I mean um, now on, on the question of, of, of Andre, I think that um, and this partly answers one question that you raised, whether the book is really on the ECB uh, or on the ECB and, and, and the Fed as it is presented. Um, I, I think that if you do count words, there is more on the ECB than on, than on the Fed. Point, it's, it's the ECB in, in here, a different type of central banking, and that I think is underdeveloping. That's my view in the central bank, and does not take into account the specificity of being a central bank of a monetary union. I, I, I'm glad that, that you find a more a deeper reason. My reason, when I thought about this, I said, well, just because I've been working at the ECB for 15 years, and uh, so I know more about it, then I wrote more about it then, but maybe there is not only that. In any case, um, I think that the problems of uh, financial stability, uh, possible dilemma with price stability, the problem of the blurred borders between fiscal and monetary policy, the, the, the problem of moral hazard apply to the Fed uh, as well as uh, to the ECB. The other ones are specific to the, uh, to the ECB. So in my sense, uh, what, what, what I propose, for instance, in terms of sequencing, I would say, well, I would propose it uh, for, 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 the Fed, uh, for the Fed as well. Uh, because then you know that uh, the Fed has uh, this dual objective. They, they think they've dealt with that by balanced approach. Um, they may say that uh, they can juggle three objectives instead of two, but okay. So no, I don't think that uh, the story is completely different between uh, the Fed and the, uh, and the, uh, and the ECB. Now, uh, the, uh, George, um, why was uh, not seen from the beginning? Basically, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know that the Queen of England uh, asked this uh, very specific uh, question, and she didn't get a, an answer. And uh, so I cannot get 
<laughs> and if you read uh, the book by uh, uh, Reinhard and Rogoff, uh, it, it seems, that, and, and but by the way, also Kindleberg in 1978, I think it was, uh, or, or, or Minsky, it seems, it seems that the some inability of uh, maybe some having to do with behavioral uh, uh, limited rationality to, to recognize uh, that we have had crisis uh, for 300 years, uh, but every time we think uh, that uh, we are getting, we are not getting the next one, or that uh, uh, if there is a cri financial crisis, that will be for developing economies. Advanced economies have graduated away uh, from them as well. Um, uh, now the last question of uh, uh, what is uh, w w whether the, we, we are in a mixed situation in Europe because uh, the, the the treaty only says price stability and the two percent was identified by the ECB. In a way, I think this is a second order issue. I mean, the ECB, given that it, it's it's price stability, it could not come up with something like eight percent they would have not been under any possible definition of uh, uh, price stability. They could have come up with one, maybe they could have come up with three. They, they said, okay, if we look at how inflation is actually measured by statistical offices, we know that there is a bias. And so if they say one is most probably zero, uh, and then some other discussions about uh, the ability of, uh, if you have a little inflation, it's easier to do uh, relative price changes. So they came to this 2%. But again, as I said, there is a lot of convention in that 2%. I mean, uh, there, is no, there is no hard science beyond this 2%. But conventions matter. Conventions. Uh, uh, last, last point. Um, uh, Negative interest rates. I mean, in, in the book, uh, there is a chart I'm very proud of. Um, I took uh, data from a, a thick book by Homer and Silai, History of Interest Rates. Uh, and uh, I tried to see whether going back five millennia, so to Babylonian times, and uh, whether there is any evidence of negative nominal interest rate. And I could not find it. So. It seemed that, that nominal negative interest rates are just a premiere uh, in five thousands of, uh, of, of history, just to stress how exceptional the situation is, which gives some, some support to the idea that natural, it's natural rates that are so low, that maybe we are in something like a secular stagnation period. Thank you, Francisco. Uh, sorry, yeah. Yes, of course, yes. Yes, please. please go. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you think you have the last word? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You don't worry, To respond to, to, to Andre, um, I think that, that is, I, I fully agree with Andre. The Central Bank of Monetary Union is a different animal from the Central Bank of Monetary Union. It's off, actually. Yeah. The other one. It's fallen. Oh, oh, that's what. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
thank you. Um, yeah, so, and, and the, the, the issue here is a fundamental instability of sovereign bond markets. In the past, when we had a fixed exchange rate system, the instability was in the foreign exchange market. We solved that by abolishing the foreign exchange markets. And we thought we had solved the instability, but now we pushed it to the sovereign bond market because the, the, the sovereigns are making promises that are not credible. That is, that they will pay back their bonds in a currency that they don't have, right? Uh, which was also the problem of the foreign exchange market. They were promising to uh, convert their domestic currency into a foreign currency at a fixed price, and that the foreign currency, they may not have it. So now we have something similar in the government bond market. So we face this problem, which the Fed does not face, and we will have to solve this. Um, the first best solution is merge the bond market. Right? <laughs> but that is so far out. This is the ultimate um, political and budgetary union that we all dream of. All, no, but not all, yeah. that I dream of. <laughs> uh, but that is so far that we, we, we can only dream of. Therefore, we have to find practical solutions because this will come back, right? So that is why, I, this, this is one of the proposals. And I, of course, André correctly says, uh, this creates moral hazard problems, right? Well, how do you deal with the moral hazard problems? Here I would say, yeah, you have to separate what the central bank is the kind of firefighter and, and the others, right? The firefighter should not try to, when it has to extinguish the fire, should not be the policeman at the same time and first catch the guilty uh, person, right? So, and we have an institutional setup that tries to control build-up of debts and deficits, and that has to be there. Of course it has to be there. But still you, and I want to stress also when, I, when this is about the spreads, right, the cap on the spreads, not the yields. So you, you, you want to, to have a cap on the spreads. And then if you have, say, a 2% cap, then yeah, you, you, you take some care of moral hazard, because it's not free, it's a deductible, right? It's a way to, to deal with it. So we have to, we will have to do these things, right? It's not that we have no choice and you cannot just say, okay, we'll not do it, it will come back. So we, we do this or we have to do other things. And then what, what is that, uh, European Monetary Fund maybe? Uh, but will it have sufficient uh, resources to deal with this? You need a central bank that has the credibility, and that uh, central bank has that because it has potentially un unlimited resources. So I think we, we have to, to, to face this problem. It's not enough to say that uh, with small hazard, uh, we, we have to try to deal with it, of course. Thank you, Paul. Marianne. Okay, the question on... Um on being outside the eurozone. Well, two parts to that answer. The first, if you look, if you, if you, if you use traditional macroeconomic uh, theory and the choice between fixed and floating exchange rates, I think um, many will point to the advantage of being outside the eurozone during the financial crisis. The krona depreciated. Uh, inflation did not drop as much as feared. Uh, our recovery was faster than our, uh, than our neighboring countries. And actually Giancarlo Corsetti has, and two co-authors have a, a nice little piece on this in the Riksbank Economic Review available on our website. Um, but there's more to, to, to this issue, and, and here this is not my area of expertise, but, but I think we are, many people are thinking about uh, what it means to be a small small open economy with an advanced uh, financial sector, but also being a, very, uh, being a very small currency area. This is, yeah, so, 
So uh, tricky questions, but, I, but it's not my my area of expertise.